0: I'm OJ Nanobi of the Toronto Raptors, and you're listening to the Double Clutch Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Double Clutch Podcast. I'm one of the usual hosts, Mike Miller, and on this episode, we've got something very different for you. We've got a special interview with the one and only Mr. Roland Lazenby. Roland is responsible for some fantastic NBA biographies, including Michael Jordan, The Life, which is one of my favourite of all time, probably because it's Jordan, but you know that already. Um, Showboat, The Life of Kobe Bryant. Jerry West, The Life and Legend of a Basketball Icon. You can find Roland on Twitter, at lazenb. Whilst you're there, make sure, if you're not already, that you're following at Double Clutch UK. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at that handle. Um, make sure, if you're not already, that you are subscribed to the podcast. And if you want to, in fact, even if you don't want to, go and give us a five-star review because that really helps us out. So, in the interview, we discuss his upcoming book on Magic Johnson, The Evolution of Basketball, The All-Star Game, which he recently attended, uh, NBA in the UK in general, and the upcoming 2020 ten-hour Michael Jordan documentary. It's a special one. I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here is Mr. Roland Lazenby. Thanks very much, Roland, for joining us once again on the pod. Um, you, well, you're a friend of the pod now because you've been on twice. So, <laughs> so welcome back. How have you been?
1: Thank you. I'm I'm well. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm very well. Thank you. Loving loving life at the minute and uh, enjoying this NBA season uh congratulations you've you've recently signed a two-book deal um maybe we should start there uh can you can you tell us anything about what you're working on at the minute
1: i uh just started work uh on a biography of magic johnson about a month ago i've been interviewing so many people from his childhood and past it's uh, already a fascinating project i hope it's my best book ever
0: what, is it going to be uh, in the similar vein to The Life and, and Showboat in, in that you go back in, well, you went back in, in significant detail into the the recent pasts of, you know, the, sort of the heritage of, of Michael and, and Kobe. Is it going to be a similar sort of uh, intense deep dive into their past?
1: Yes, uh, it is. There, There's always a look at, at heritage and lineage. But I really... Uh, Magic Johnson has an absolutely extraordinary adolescence, uh, unbelievable, uncommon in so many ways. And so I'm having fun. I'm amazed that every interview I do, he he was just such an amazing young person and yet was also uh, all those things we think of when we think of teenagers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> He could get out of bounds, you know, as well as any of them. But he really uh, came of age at a difficult time in the USA. Tremendous racial conflict going on. And uh, his school leaned on him pretty heavily to uh, be a, a leader in that uh, effort to end the conflict. But uh, that's just part of it. There's so many things i'm really having fun discovering who the adolescent magic johnson was the kid on the bicycle riding around town you know playing basketball on all the courts and just just fun stuff
0: yeah so it's lansing michigan he's from isn't it and uh it is. It, it must have been, you know, in that in that part of the world at that time. Being well, it, he wouldn't have been quite mean six foot nine then, but he was a, a, a big guy with an afro. That might have, must have been a really. He, he was quite a, an, an obvious character, if that makes sense, and and so you know, with his skills as well, he would be thrust into the limelight as as a well, like you say, as, the, as sort of the mantle for the school. Um, I wonder how much of his personality was natural or how much of it sort of was, was forced to come out of of his experiences as a teenager.
1: Oh, I think that, um, he is, um, quite the natural personality. He is also uh, has always been a person with an agenda. He, uh, is sort of like, he really, um, presaged today's star players in that he was a player, a coach, and a general manager all rolled into one at the same time playing the game. Uh, you know, they say the great coaches are control freaks. Well, many of the great players are also, in Magic, even at a young age, had a determined agenda. So it's it's fun to track that. It's fun to try He's revolutionary as a point guard because he's a big man. So it's been fun tracking the revolution, finding out all the things that had to fall into place for him to be a 6'9 guy handling the basketball. That That's common today, or somewhat common. Uh, at that time, no one at that size was allowed to handle the ball.
0: It It, it is crazy that it's taken us, what, well, 30-odd thir- years to get to a point where we're now seeing guys of his size be allowed to to be the floor general i mean it's uh, it only really came you know, became commonplace and it's not even commonplace but it popularized after lebron came back it, well came to the league essentially that's when we started to see more and more of it happening it's just really mm-hmm. you
1: know only coach and figure such uh, is that from Europe, and part of it is some of the European influence. Strictly in terms of American basketball, uh, as, a, as a big point guard, 6'9", Magic was revolutionary, not only in his size, but especially revolutionary in how he played the position. Nobody has ever played point guard the way he did, and I don't think anyone ever will. I don't think it's possible he was so unique.
0: How, how do you think, you? and I know this is uh, an impossible question, but how do you think he'd have fared in the modern game?
1: Uh, you know, I think he would have had to get better as a three-point shooter, but he was such a competitor. You know, they couldn't even figure out how he would do in the game of 1980. <laughs> um, no one was sure how he would project into the NBA. He would, He just was a different figure. And there were as many questions about him as probably any player ever. But uh, the fact that he was named Magic and had that smile was enough for Jerry Buss, who was just buying
0: the Lakers when
1: Magic came along in uh, in the draft of
0: nineteen seventy nine. It's, it's crazy. He he was almost a bull, wasn't he? There was a coin coin toss. If I I say, if I recall, if the books, if I remember the
1: there books, is as, as soon as the Lakers. Won the toss. They let out a deep yell, particularly Chick Hearn. And then they signed uh, Magic a couple of months ahead of the draft. He was one of the earliest signees in NBA history. They wasted no time in getting his name on paper.
0: And then he wasted no time just coming in and, well making his mark. Obviously, he, he played on that team with, with Kareem, and then that first season, uh, Cap went down with an injury, in, in, and Magic took over in the, in the finals. Um,
1: Legendary. and It wasn't even televised on live television in the US. It was on tape delay.
0: It's unfathomable, isn't it? It
1: showed itself the impact he and Larry Bird and then Michael Jordan had in elevating the game, not just in this country, but all over the world.
0: Do you, do you think that, you know, the way that we exist now as a society and everything is in the moment, do you think that his, his legacy is, is overlooked to a degree?
1: Uh, I do. I, and I think that, um, you know, the HIV status meant that he ended his career um, early. Uh, he, he did uh, have his role with the Dream Team, and that that helped. But uh, he could have played. He was the kind of player that could have played for a while. And so uh I I tend to think of him as a um sort of pre-digital. Um you, you know, he he uh, he did not make the media age that Michael Jordan stepped into. He certainly had the charisma and but culturally the United States was not ready to pay an african-american male lots of money to be a marketing figure when when magic came along and they were ready to do that finally five years later when michael jordan came along but uh you know it it separates the two men a bit um by about a billion (laughs) dollars
0: yeah yeah. Uh, it certainly does uh do do you think that the relationship between bird and magic is is almost and the way that evolved is is like a commentary on on american society at the time you know they were initially rivals and to a degree at least in the public eye sort of fierce rivals uh, and then as their careers progressed and matured they became much closer, uh, uh, well, off the court, certainly. Do do you think there's any sort of, you can draw parallels between the, uh, I don't want to use the word evolution, but the progression in American society at that time? Um,
1: It's hard to do that. I think in a lot of ways, uh, they're just two guys who were similar, just playing basketball. One happened to be black, one happened to be white. Now, the country itself Uh, seized on that and made it really big both of those guys uh, I mean it really wasn't something they were seeking to do but it it ended up making the whole issue much bigger and so I I think it's been good that they while they didn't like each other very much while they were competing and that was in an age when guys competing didn't like each other today they all go on vacation together and share the same agents, and, you know, sort of uh, all this fraternization off the court. Back then, it was all spit and blood, you know, there was none of that. And so uh, I, I think it helps, it has helped race relations in this country a bit to have two high-profile guys like that from very, uh, from, opposite sides of the racial culture in this country to have the appreciation they have for each other um, and so you know that's that's part of sports contribution to society uh, particularly in this country I, I, I guess it's been the same in the UK but um, you, you know society far too long was caught up in and it still is to a great degree caught up in racial differences and class and and all of the prejudices that go with that. But sports was the great conversation, the equalizer, the meeting ground, the place where um, power shifted.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's obviously a, a huge topic uh, and Magic Johnson's career is a huge story. At what, at what point are you bringing the book up to? Is it going to, you know, right up to present day as, as Lakers GM or is it going to be ending, you know, uh, when his no, co-
1: I, It's going to do the whole thing. He's had an extraordinary life. Uh, you know, I, I was really around that team a whole lot when he attempted his comeback in 1992. And uh while being HIV positive. And um he was really courageous, I thought, just observing things up close. Because there was so much fear and so so much misunderstanding about uh his status as HIV positive. And uh but you know. And it's badly. I mean, this guy, there's ever a player who just absolutely lived and breathed basketball. I mean, it was his soul. And he could have persisted in playing when he tried to come back. But there was so much neg- negativity, and he, he really wanted, really, really wanted to play. But he did not want to harm the game. And he saw that all of the controversy would quickly consume the game. And as much as he wanted to play, he didn't. He quit. It was a tough thing.
0: Yeah, it must have been. Like like you say, It's it, it was his... It was his lifelong passion. He sort of lived and breathed it, and then to have it taken away from you when before you're ready to to walk away from it must be an incredibly difficult uh, thing to go to, especially to go through, especially under those specific circumstances. Um, I find I find the whole thing fascinating, especially sort of you know some of the comments that came from his his fellow players and and dream teamers at the time uh, that that spring to mind, and it's just it's the perception, and then. It's almost like, because of the position he was in, I, I almost feel like he was able to, but no means overnight. But over time, he was able to raise awareness and, and improve understanding of of the disease to a degree. And that's, that's maybe that's putting not too much credit at his his, his you know feet. No, but
1: I, I think he helped do that. I, it was such a shock in 1991 when that was announced uh and he was such a large figure he had consumed the game and and been the figure who who ruled it basically
0: yeah he, he was months away from the finals wasn't he
1: right and so he had been this figure for from the moment he arrived in the nba he had a lot of help the lakers team you know had been stocked with great players but he was the driving force, and uh, so, no, it was, uh, it, er, there was no understanding of what, it, what being HIV positive meant, and there was no understanding of the disease, and it was a deadly disease. It still is. It still kills lots of humans, but, um, you know, he, he, he did what he could. And uh, the main thing he's done since is live, live an engaged life and do lots of more big things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's the current GM of the Lakers and and that at one point
1: Stein at <laughs> LeBron James.
0: <laughs> exactly. And he's uh, probably well he was fighting he's well he's getting fines left right and center for, for t- air quotes tampering. Um you, yeah, I, th- I think that part of that's just Magic's personality, and part, and it's almost like he needs to do that as well. He's the salesman; he needs to he needs to tell people he wants wants them. It's it's part and parcel of it because he knows he needs talent to win. Um,
1: and it's also the age. Yes, uh, they're pampering right and left. Virtually every part of the All Star game this past weekend was one form of recruiting or another. Exactly, even the league turning the teams over uh, to to top players to uh, instead of the Eastern and Western Conference, it's Team LeBron. Uh, all of that just sets the stage for the age of of tampering. The new age of Immensely heightened player power.
0: Yes, and that's 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 something I wanted to cover. So that's brilliant. We're going to get onto that very shortly. So you obviously you just been at the All Star Game. Um, how was your weekend?
1: Well, I'm old and <laughs> I need knee surgery, and uh, the All Star Game was just miserable in terms of uh, uh, security and the confusion over how they wanted to do things. And it was spread out and not particularly well coordinated. On the other hand, they had more than 2,000 journalists in the city of Charlotte to cover the event. And so considering the degree of difficulty of coordinating such a mob, uh, and they, they arrived from all over the world, which is a sign of uh, the health of American pro basketball, um, besides, besides my annoyance with security and and confusion, and my age and my knee, uh, I, I, I thought the weekend went pretty well. It was pretty interesting in a lot of ways. I and I traditionally despise the All Star Game as a bunch of foolishness. Um, really not germane to to true basketball. That's a faulty view I've had. There are things about it that are charming and important. There's a lot of hooey to it as well, a lot of fluff. Unfortunately, the game itself, the regular games, have become more like the all-star game. There's not much defense, and it's made up of all these grand offensive displays.
0: How much of that do you think is a deliberate, um, almost marketing ploy by the NBA to, to create a glitz and glamorous sport that's, that's appealing to the eye?
1: Well, I think it, it's the entire domain of the suits. Now, some of the basketball people said basketball had gotten a bit too thuggish. And so uh, the changes began at the rules committee ostensibly. But make no mistake, the suits wanted it. It's the same in American football. They they've really tried to eliminate defense, I and mean, it's actually a good thing there because American football is a brutally physical game. I've I've played it some in college and high school, and uh, it needs it has needed some cleaning up. But the new age is, you know caters to fantasy fans and, and those people who want to see tremendous offensive displays. And basketball has gone a long way toward eliminating all the physical defense and, and all, of the, the, all of the drills associated with it, all of the things that went into keeping Michael Jordan in check, not just in hand check, but in very physical check. And, uh, you, you know, the age that was, the game that was, bears little resemblance to today. And it creates a real problem for people trying to do comparisons. You know, sp- sport is, uh, is a exercise in comparison. We want to say, who's the greatest this? Or who's the greatest that? And... So the idea that you could compare players from today's juiced up game where there's no physical challenge to players of yesterday who had to endure often very physical challenges to play and to score, it's hard to do. Michael Jordan, of course, had a great answer on the eve of the All-Star game when someone asked him about James Harden scoring 30 or more points had a streak of 30 games doing that. And, uh, you know, Jordan had a similar thing. And uh, he was asked about that. And he said, well, the most difficult thing I ever did was win six championships with a And uh, the scoring thing, you know, just sort of happened. But, um, Jordan um, was correct. That's brilliant because none of these guys, now I think the Warriors could do it. No, they could easily win six if they don't break up their team in the off season. But, it, and it, it is, it is quite a challenge to win that many physically and mentally. And so Jordan may be safe for a while longer in that. But it's really hard for a guy like Harden to answer that because he's never played well in the playoffs, particularly well. And uh, the teams he's on have never done particularly well in the playoffs. Um, So uh, certainly not winning a championship. And I don't think that's going to happen this year either, although they're having another bang-up regular season. And the coach, Mike D'Antoni, who's a fine man, an excellent person, and yet he's just never been able to put together a team that could seriously compete for a title. They've played well in the regular season. But um, on to the bigger question, I need to add this. The suits who set this up, who changed the rules so that it wasn't so brutish, the NBA wasn't so brutish. The response to that by fans all over the world has meant that the NBA is raking in huge amounts of money. I don't know if that will continue, but as long as it does, I, I never see the NBA retreating from the juiced-up offensive game that's played today.
0: It, you, you mentioned at the start. Well, I say at the start when we were talking about. Uh... Magic and, and Bird about about their rivalry and the physicality and 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 now it's all a fraternity. How how an impact do you think these rule changes have had on on making everyone friendly? It's almost like that you know, you mentioned it. There was there was the NBA needed to clean its act up. You had things like the malice in the palace, so the rule changes needed to come in to take away some of that physicality. Is is that why we've got this this fraternity that we see now? Then is is that what we're essentially saying that that.
1: I think that's a big role if somebody busts you in the face during a game and you lose a tooth. You're not exactly peaches and cream with them in a summer vacation. Uh, A game that really doesn't have much physicality and much in the way of physical defense just doesn't create that, that kind of hyper-intense atmosphere uh, that playoff basketball used to create. Uh, You know, and it's been a process over the decades. I don't want to just hang it on recent developments. You know, they used to call in America, they used to call basketball the cage game because – it was played in all the mining towns and rough neighborhoods of the Northeast. And they'd have these big rope nets around the uh, court that resembled cages. And the press would describe the players like monkeys in a cage and the miners and the roughnecks and all these various communities would would come in and look at the games through the cages and they, they would heat up coins and and other things to throw at the players it was uh it was not quite barbaric but it was it was pretty close and, and so over time there has been a refining of the game and of course over time uh, uh the nBA became a league that focused on its star power that's how it succeeded and um, that has made the players increasingly rich and powerful in making key decisions about the game. There are a lot of good things about that, and some things that aren't so good. But uh, it's sort of the evolution that we have, and I, I think it's I, I think it's um, fascinating and important that players can make so much money. They're paid as entertainers.
0: So having having watched basketball for for a number of what well, decades now how how do, do you get frustrated watching the modern game because you, you, you're you're very much on the the defense is gone this is you know it's a show it's entertainment now
1: well you know for for someone who's never won a, a championship dan tony's philosophy has had immense impact on the modern game and when the warriors we had a watershed in 2015 when the Warriors won the title and they did it with an extraordinary lineup with extraordinary shooting. They could spread the floor. They really played brilliantly. And it's funny how everyone immediately took that as a sign that D'Antoni's philosophy worked. And so we have some teams that are really doing some fine shooting, but you see an awful lot of games and an awful lot of bad shots, and some nights it's it's just not watchable. It is not uh, appealing. Uh, I say that as a connoisseur of the old game. Apparently, uh, younger generations lap it up. Uh, I, there is a degree of difficulty. I, I think Stephen Curry would and uh, and Clay Thompson and those guys on the Warriors would be stars in in just about any era. Uh, And and so that's good. And all these other players, when you can come out, really what it is is a shooting exhibition. Um, I don't care if you have somebody guarding you or not. It's pretty amazing. A lot of the shots they hit, even if they're just out of warm-up shooting to shoot that. (laughs) And uh, the, you know, the depth and craziness of the shots, there's, There's an appeal in that, obviously, but that appeal comes at the price of so many players who can't shoot jacking up and being required to really, because of how the game's played, to jack up bad shots, ugly play, inconsequential, mindless play that really (coughs) doesn't feature a lot of the great teamwork and discipline of the past. Now, the Warriors, on the other hand, epitomize the new age and the uh the old age of basketball. They, they they pull it off all in one. And they're fascinating. But and there are other teams in pro basketball I really enjoy watching. One of them is the new the Brooklyn Mets. They play really hard and they they you know they are um Not a lot of big name players on that team, but they just play so hard and they're turning what has been a traditionally bad franchise into one that's worth watching every night just by virtue of how hard they go at it.
0: I, th- I think they're in a transitional phase at the minute and it's it's really nice to have some optimism there because in in recent seasons I've actually boycotted watching Nets games because I just haven't been able to s- stomach oh, it's
1: been it terrible <laughs> yeah. it's
0: been
1: unwatchable but now they're very watchable they are exciting and it's fun they have uh, this sort of uh, this true hoops bug hey they really honor the game and just the way they play and their chemistry and all of those good things and how hard they defend and you know I'd put them on every night if I were the NBA. <laughs> do, you,
0: do you think a big part of that though is that they're not supposed to be where they are now? You mentioned they they, they don't have any you know star players. Obviously they got D'Angelo Russell, Karis LeVert, who who are guys who are who are not. You know, D'Angelo's an all star
1: Those guys are good, but they are not. Now, D'Angelo, Russell, this uh, is starting to to get some recognition, but they are not what you would consider stars, I don't think. They they are star quality, but I don't think they have a big following yet.
0: So do you th- do you think then some of the appeal of the Nets is that they are inevitably underdogs who are playing the right way?
1: Yes, but I think they're actually becoming a very good team. And so it's fun to watch that process, all the work that goes into it. Anytime someone can flip the script. I was at the All-Star game, and it's so maddening with those 2000 media. You know, it used to be such a relaxed affair where you could go with your – tape recorder and sit down at a table. I mean there'd be a number of reporters there, but you could talk to virtually everybody. And you could just wander around and all the figures were there and you could I would go and do dozens and dozens of interviews. And now it is just mayhem and it is all organized but it is there's no there's none of that give and take you get in a relaxed interview or in a, a personal exchange. But I did, Joe Harris was being, uh, you know, he had a, the cute, he had his podium and the microphone and a small group of reporters there. Most of the other places around the people were getting mobbed. But Joe Harris uh, also played at the University of Virginia in a state where, I'm, where I live. And so I was able to chat with him and and ask talk to him a bit about how he flipped the script on his own career and how the Nets were doing that. And I also got a chance to talk with him because he didn't think he had any chance. He didn't give that impression. He had any chance of outshooting Steph Curry in the three-point showdown. But he had this confidence and this... Um, He he puts on no pretensions whatsoever. You know, he's a guy who'll just walk out of the building and walk to his apartment after a game. He's not a... uh, They love him in New York. It was sort of the thing Phil Jackson used to do when he was a young player with the Knicks. He'd ride the subway to the game, you know. Uh, He was was not a limo kind... Of of course, back in the days... You know, Walt Frazier would take a limo, perhaps, to the game. But the modern NBA, it's all about limos and driving your cars or whatever. And Joe Harris is this very unpretentious guy who who comes in. He has this tremendous confidence. And so it was fun to chat with him and then to see him win that three-point shootout. That was a treat, I have to admit.
0: It seems to be for most people that the highlight of the weekend, uh, the, the three point shootout. Um, did you go to all the events? Did you watch things like the the, the dunk contest and everything like that?
1: I, I watched some of it, but I, I'll be honest with you. Many years, I get bored with that stuff. I go to do interviews. Yeah, um, I, I'm not one to hype and to uh, you, you know. Some people get invested in the moment. This has got to be the greatest moment. Because I'm here watching, it, you know, and all this dunking is, and it's great. Don't get me wrong. I I love to watch competitive games. And the all-star stuff is is just sort of fluff. I I was interviewing the great Norm Van Leer. He was one of these two-fisted guards for the old Chicago Bulls with Jerry Sloan, another two-fisted guard back in the 70s and he got and, and they were notorious for taking charges and just playing very physical defense and I was interviewing Norm and he recalled when he got he was uh, in a position to go to the all-star game he was having a great year and he, he looked at me and said what was I going to do go to the all-star game and take charges <laughs> yeah. And so there's no real um format. Oh, there's no format for real basketball in any of this stuff. And it's it's all contrived stuff.
0: Would you like to see any changes? Do you, do you think there's a a way of fixing the All-Star game?
1: I don't know. I, you know, I've never considered it worth that much thought. But uh uh, yeah, I would make the game competitive if possible. The All-Star game's important for what it is. It's an easy target for guys like me. Um, I think the game itself during the regular season has taken on a little bit too much of the feel of the All-Star game. They they really are silly exercises, and they're, they're offensive exhibitions. Uh, you know, I don't think I've ever sat and watched – one of the NFL's Pro Bowls, which is its version of the All-Star Game. I've occasionally watched uh, Major League Baseball in this country. Uh, You know, they have uh, the Home Run Derby. I've occasionally watched that. Um, And so those are curious exercises. I get more fun out of watching players warm up before the game. Uh, they get into all their own little shooting games and drills, and they're betting with each other and heaving up shots. A lot of them are working seriously on taking shots, and th- that's changed. But and I used to get a huge delight out of watching Bird go through his Larry Bird go through his furious workout before games in Boston Garden. That that was the part of the tradition I liked. Uh, but now, the, I, I think it costs $650 to get into the All-Star game. It's, uh, it's reserved. It's a huge TV event.
0: Um, it almost feels like a, a marketing event to reminds the, the hardcore NFL addicts that there's another sport now. Theirs has ended for the, the year. And then also to try and capture... The attention of of new fans by you know showing them these spectacles of uh, you know elite elite athletes doing things that you didn't think were possible to do uh, and it's sort it's like a a, <laughs> a gateway to the real game as people get more and more into it and you find that i, I find certainly that a lot of seasoned fans you know all, all stars it's just another it's just a, a week off in the season really
1: It is. It's great for journalists. It used to be, it was what I called a gathering of the tribes. And it still is to some degree, where you had all the people in one place. You could walk around with a recorder and talk to everybody and gain an immense education about things. And it's still that. I I still think it's a great opportunity for interviewing and learning. And there's part of it I like. It's just uh, probably that I'm old. And it's passed me by, but uh, I I will say that um, you you said something interesting about the relationship of the NFL and the NBA in this country, and the NFL has for a long time uh, before that this country adored Major League Baseball; it was the culture, and over time that that love that major emphasis went to the NFL. It's where all the betting is. It's it's a violent physical game, and it it makes for often for spectacular television. And basketball, you know, was a bunch of grown men running around in their underwear. <laughs> and so, and, and, you know, and a lot of them, especially in the early days, were just a, a bunch of stiffs. Yeah. And, they were um, and they were played in, like I said, in gym, cold gyms in the Northeast, and with lopsided basketballs, and the skill level was uh, a work in progress, and and of course today it's 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 staged so well it even even the ugliest regular season game has. Unbelievable staging and theatrics, and booming sound, and uh, cheerleaders, and all kinds of goofballs doing all kind. It, it's a carnival, but the NFL's future is more limited today. You know, it's a do- it's purely a domestic product. I know they stage a game over there in London.
0: Yeah, I think uh, they had. I think they had three or four this year.
1: Yeah, they're trying hard. David Stern the NBA commissioner was of uh, yesteryear was very smart in the 1980s he was dumping televised uh NBA games all over Europe very cheaply and it caught on everywhere except in uh Great Britain uh, you know i i i don't think it's it rules other places but it has a strong, strong following in Poland and Italy and France. And and there is some following in Great Britain. But Great Britain has its own traditions. And while there's other countries, uh, and in Asia, the NBA has had big success. Um, and that's just that's just not the British way. Uh, I, that was really impressed upon me when I when I went over. Uh, I was stunned that my my Kobe biography was nominated for the Cross uh, British Sports Book Awards because sport in the UK is very little about basketball, but the NBA globally is in a good place and it that means lots of global revenue lots of tv money the nfl on the other hand i i don't know where it's going have you been to any of those games in london i
0: i went to the first one which i want to say was about 2007 and it was obviously
1: this- it made a huge impression on it.
0: I, I I used to follow at the NFL to be fair, but I I decided that uh, I I couldn't watch two sports. The the amount of basketball I consume, it just wasn't physically possible. Um, well, that, it's true,
1: <laughs> especially if you're going to be now these guys that cover all of them. I'm stunned.
0: Yeah, it amazes me how they how they can do that and retain it all. Uh, but it's interesting what you're saying about the Brit- Britain's relationship with the NBA, because we've been very fortunate enough to have the London game here uh, for I want to say ten years now. But it feels like the recent game um, in January uh, was the last hurrah. There were lots of well, there were hints from from Adam Silver that this that going forwards it could be in 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 France, uh, in in Paris particularly. And that maybe it was time that Europe, the wider European sort of area, deserved a game, and it totally makes sense to me because I feel like as a country we've we've squandered our opportunities to to embrace the game, and I say that, and at the same time, for in terms of uh, consumption of the That's NBA,
1: no fault of yours,
0: no, no, yeah, no fault of mine, um, but. Um, the the consumption of the nba as a country the the uk has the highest league pass subscription rate in europe and is the second uh, it might be, and the second highest uh, merchandise sales so that there is a an appetite for it but it just seems to be a subculture is still sort of—it's—it's it's still just bubbling away underneath the surface, and I—I—I I, I can't get my head around why. Whereas the NFL, because they've been coming over every year, seems to have exploded. And one of my theories is that, well, it's—it's it's a hell of a lot easier to to follow uh, a sport which plays one game a week at, at, on a weekend normally, versus for, try and follow a team that plays three, four times a week. At unsociable hours—it it just makes the NBA a, a lot more difficult to follow. But there's obviously an appetite for it. It's just—it just amazes me that it's not thought of more highly.
1: Well, you know, I think um, the UK is still very much an empire, even though it the uh, the official designations as such are not there. And I, I, I think the relationship with the United States. Is that it's a former colony, and uh, you know it's just it's sort of deeply ingrained in some of that. I think as an empire, the UK sort of has its own agenda. Now it's 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 been set back by Brexit, no question. Uh, but every democracy in the known world, it seems to me, is is going through challenging times right now. I I don't think that really has the impact on basketball. From what I saw in my time there, the, the UK is very well engaged with a variety of sports. And they are the kinds of sports that are played throughout its empire. And that goes hand in hand with the BBC and its coverage and you really get a, a sense that the UK is about a, a bigger agenda. I mean, I, you know, I am called to go on the BBC from time to time to discuss American basketball, but it's not a um, it's just not a priority. It's, it's a
0: very high level, isn't it? That it's it's just it's sort of no detail at all uh, that it's discussed. The other the other week, I was on uh, one of the, the the BBC Radio Five channel, uh, and it, it was a very very light conversation about um, the trade deadline, essentially. And I'm I'm not even sure entirely that it was exactly what they were looking for if that makes sense it was it's it's they sort of tra- tried to draw comparisons with the the football trap, the, the football soccer transfer window um things like that and you know, they couldn't they couldn't wrap their head around just the idea that c- contracts are exchanged versus players are being purchased and re-signed and i think uh, it's 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 fundamentally alien to the vast majority it, it, of people
1: it is and the language of basketball the all of this information, you can get on a BBC broadcast, and in about five seconds, you're off in the weeds for the listeners. They, I mean, it's it's simply not a world that many of them participate in. You know, I think that American shoe, or global shoe manufacturers, basketball shoe manufacturers, would love and have lusted for years to get their claws deep into India. Uh, India is still part of the empire. It's so connected to the UK culturally, in sports culturally. I just don't think. They, they may have some uh, success here or there with it, selling basketball shoes in India. It is a huge market. But I don't think this is a bad thing. I don't think the whole world should be, and I love the global interest in basketball and American basketball. It's, it's really not an American game anymore. It's played in so many places. And that really started as soon as it was invented because It was invented at the School for Christian Workers, and these were missionaries who took the game all over the globe in a matter of months. It was being played in China and Japan and all these places at the turn of the last century. But I think it's good that globally we have different value systems and that we value different things. I, I think one of the disappointing things about America is the sameness that has overcome it. Every town has the same restaurants, the same franchises, the same hotels, the it, it it's um yeah, I think I think it's I don't think there's anything wrong with the UK uh sort of Having a lukewarm response to the NBA, I think those the heritage and traditions celebrated in the uh, UK are just fine.
0: Okay, uh, so let's let's move on away fr- um, from the, <laughs> from the from the, the poor state of the UK's appreciation of the NBA. Um, <laughs> so it was obviously. Uh- Michael Jordan was hosting the All Star Game, although he wasn't there for you know over his birthday weekend. He kept um, a
1: very low profile.
0: He did, um, which was disappointing for me. I'd have liked to have seen more, but maybe that's because I'm a massive Jordan fan. Um, we're about a year away from
1: profile. He likes being in Charlotte. He likes slipping off and playing golf and having his life. He does not uh, enjoy trying to carry all of that human interest.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. He, he, I mean, he spent so many years in the spotlight that he's he's enjoying some time out of it. Um, we're, we're about a year away from the release of the 10-hour the documentary, The Last Dance. Uh, I know that you were around the team at the time because you were writing uh, Blood on the Horns. Right,
1: right. right.
0: Um, c- can you take us back there? What sort of things... Can we expect, or do you think we should expect from this series? For, well, from my...
1: Andy Thompson was uh, the photographer and filmmaker for NBA Entertainment. And he had access to everything with Jordan behind the scenes. Andy Thompson is Clay Thompson's uncle.
0: Yes. yeah, it's, it's crazy how that's linked, isn't it?
1: It is. And Andy's a great guy. I saw him at All-Star Weekend. He had had this fabulous film he shot 20 years ago. And for years and years he had it trying to get some movement on getting it made into some sort of public event because all of it's fascinating footage. And um, Michael had no interest. And uh, he was Probably also very cagey and very smart because the game has changed so much. If he had released it earlier, it might not have had the impact that it will today or will next year to see all of this story. And it was a very contentious season, it was a team. Fighting sometimes viciously with itself, mostly between the team and management, but it created some crazy conflict. It was uh, very frustrating for the fans to have this great team that was in which it was preordained that the team would break up at the end of the season. There really hasn't been much like it in American sport, and probably not. In global sport, and so um, I think it will be very compelling television, and I, I'm eager to see it just because I've witnessed the personal story, and I was there while they were shooting it. I,
0: I can't, I can't wait for it. I'm, I'm desperate to, to sort of to, to get my hands on a copy and, and and just consume it. I'm trying to, I'm trying to work out because obviously the the level of coverage. Back then was nowhere near the the level now. You know the constant media cycle, twenty four seven. But I I i know from having just even on this side of the pond that 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 era Bulls team were covered like the Beatles were covered everywhere they went. And so it's it, I, I'm, half of me is like, what hasn't already come out that we. That, you know what is there that we don't know about and then the other half of me is just is just excited to see something that potentially could have been you know could be new it's uh
1: I, it's going to be a uh, revelation by a thousand points of light I think they're going to be all the little inside views and details I don't think you're going to see some sweeping uh, news-breaking moment. I think the power of this film is going to be showing the greatest player in this capstone achievement, winning its, his sixth title amidst all this conflict uh, and seeing him in a com- full and complete way.
0: I, yeah, I, I, I cannot wait for it. It's it's going to be amazing. I'm trying I'm trying to figure out because it's it's an ESPN film, isn't it? So it's going to be interesting to see how the rights are picked up in in the UK. Um, but yeah, cannot cannot wait for it, and uh, it should be amazing. Uh, just before you go, let's let's quickly just have a look at uh, your predictions for the rest of the season. Can you is there any sort of things you think we should be watching out for? Obviously, there's been disparity between the East and the West in terms of player quality. But with the, quite frankly, I, I found it an extremely eventful trade deadline and enjoyed it a lot. There seems to have been a a rebalancing to a degree, not necessarily of top. And I realise I'm caveating this hugely, but not of of you know superstar current talent. But there's been a some really good moves, I think, to bolster some of the top contenders in the East. Do you have any predictions for the for the run up to the playoffs?
1: Um, the East is a little difficult to figure because so many changes have been made and you always have to watch changes to see how they play out but I, I don't see anything slowing up Milwaukee until the playoffs uh, I think Philadelphia is going to get better I think Boston still a very big question mark I, I just don't think anybody can deal with the Warriors in either conference
0: I think that uh, I think does seem the inevitable again doesn't it <laughs>
1: Yeah, I just I don't see that. Uh, I, I you know I I, I just think uh, they they now have more power, more options, the Warriors than ever. And I, I you know it's the only thing will be all the off court stuff, the business of who's going where, who's giving up, who's leaving, what. But, uh, you know, those teams, uh, Steve Kerr was on that Bulls team in 98, and he certainly understands how important it is to have his team playing in the moment, and his Warriors will do that. I, I don't think they'll lose. I could be wrong, but I don't think they will. I I,
0: <laughs> I can't see them losing.
1: <laughs> I don't think anybody from the East is going to give them uh, a real serious challenge.
0: They're just, they're just too... Too much, aren't they? Um, do do you foresee this summer being the the end of this iteration of the Warriors? Do you do you think they're going to be able to keep hold of? Uh, well, they've got. They've got over the next two years. Obviously, this summer they've got KD uh, and Clay, and next year they've got Draymond. So it's it's how long before this this these Warriors, who are have have been, in my opinion, certainly, and it's not an unusual opinion, have been one of the greatest teams we've ever had the the pleasure of witnessing. How long before that that window is closed?
1: Well, you know, it depends on a lot of trends we're seeing in the NBA. Player, the the power of players to move and and to create their own uh, unions and to basically play pickup basketball to pick up. It's not just the all-star game, but the league itself, Uh, the power players uh, are are looking to unite. That's, that's the essence of pickup basketball. That's the heart of how the game is played all over the world. Uh, If you go to the courts, you want to get your best team so that You can keep winning and keep playing. And so there are other things. Uh, It's not hard for players to get their heads turned. They think they need to do other things. I I think the big key will probably be Durant. Uh, And it's so hard to read what's going on there. Uh, If Durant stays, I think the Warriors uh, find a way to keep it fresh. And that will be their challenge. And we will see other teams trying to morph into the kind of assemblies that you know can rise to that warrior level.
0: Yeah, I, I do f- feel that they've made other teams work harder. If that makes sense, that they, they've other teams have had to evolve more more quickly. Um, but it just there's just no there's no way they can recoup this, this lost ground until until age or, or circumstance ends this Warriors I can't I can't see anyone getting near them. Um, you, it
1: guarantees for Durant and Steph Curry that if they somehow manage to stay together and win championships for the next three or four years, uh, they will take turns being MVPs. They will have all time legacies. Uh, they, they will be esteemed at a level that many of the other very fine players today will never reach. They'll all be also Rands. They'll have to get on TV and try to misbehave like Charles Barkley. <laughs> uh, do,
0: you, do you think this sort of player power era and this whole sort of uh, teaming up and, and leaving small markets, do you think that's going to cause any concerns with the? The next CBA talks in two years' time.
1: Oh yes, I think. Um, who knows where all this heads? I think what Rich Paul did, LeBron's agent, and uh, Anthony Davis's agent, what he did was, uh, in some ways, very hand fisted. Uh, it was a power move to to make that play, and it you know got people fired. It got ugly. It, it really has sort of wrecked the mindset of several teams. And so this has its destructive elements, too. Who gets chosen and who doesn't? And so it has a lot of potential for people to be angry for a long time. Yeah. And so uh, it gets away from that old atmosphere. Uh, we go back to Jordan again in the conversation when he was in the league, there's an old Western saying in the United States, you dance with who brung ye. Okay. <laughs> Whoever brought you to the dance, you yeah. dance with them. If the Bulls drafted you, unless you get traded, that's your team. You know, you, you make your stand there. And that's what Jordan did. And that's what so many of magic and you know so many of the players from that era found a place to make their stand and did it. This is uh, a nomadic league uh, it's all to be decided, certainly not by guys like me. It's decided by guys you know with those thousand dollar phones who are the mega consumers of the age that's I, I have a fairly good view of things, but a lot of this is beyond my vision. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Fair enough. That sounds like a, a good place to to leave it. But uh, that that was uh, that was awesome. Uh, it was great to have you on again, Roland.
1: I'll tell you, it was a great interview, a wonderful conversation, great questions. I always enjoy it.
0: So that's all we've got time for on this episode. Thank you very much to Roland for taking a break from his hectic research schedule for his upcoming book, which will be called Magic Johnson, The Life, and is due out in 2021. Just before we recorded, uh, Roland mentioned that he'd already clocked up over 100 hours of interview research for this, this book, so that's a huge number wow fair play I'm looking very much looking forward to reading it Uh, again if you're not already make sure you're following him on Twitter at Lazenby and us on all social media platforms at Double Clutch UK thank you very much for listening we'll catch you on the next episode